I'm Blake Tires of Creature Comforts Brewing Company, and this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. My guest is Brad Clark of Private Press Brewery, and he is here for a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. First, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media at allaboutbeer. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We'll get into the conversation in just a moment, but first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. Okay, let's get into it. A bit about my guest today. Brad Clark is the founder and operator of Private Press Brewing located in Santa Cruz, California. Clark has specialized in creating barrel-aged malt forward beers for almost two decades and is now focused exclusively on composing imperial stouts and barley wines. Private Press is a dedicated pursuit to the craft. Oh, sorry. Private Press is a dedicated pursuit to craft the beers that Clark loves and admires without compromise. Brad, it's good to see you, my friend. Uh, Thanks for jumping on this podcast, and uh, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you for reaching out to me and making all this happen. Um, this is, it's it, it's great to see you, Blake. It's been too yeah, long. It has, and uh, it was a fun opportunity. You know, I got to pick what brewer I wanted to talk to, and basically, I was just like, well, what conversation do I want to to have with a friend of mine? And I hadn't caught up with you in a while. Hadn't really talked in depth since you started at Private Press. Um, you know, it's always been in passing. So I'm really excited to kind of ask you how that's going. And so I guess we'll just get right into it. So it's been fun watching you uh, put this whole thing together. Um, I've been a member and I thank you for letting me be a part of it. I've been really enjoying see how you construct this new creation and make it yours. And it's definitely a different um, brewery than you were doing before. And it's a different brewery than most are doing still. Um, So I think once you dig into that, though, the really cool thing that strikes me is your passion for music. You've got records and speakers and a turntable behind you. You know, it's right there. So um, I think, you know, it's pretty obvious that the influence that has had on this project. So I want to start there. Um, tell me about your relationship with music. You know, how did it begin? And, you know, you know what what got you into music to be as a part of a life, a part of your life as it is today? Yeah. Um, great question. Um, it probably, I mean, it started when I was young. Um, my, my dad was really into like smooth jazz, um, or like, you know, eighties jazz and always had like a lot of CDs and was always, you know, there's always music playing in the house. Um, and so I think I just kind of like latched onto that very early on. Um, my parents tell me stories of like when I couldn't sleep, they'd go downstairs and turn on like MTV and, uh, and that would put me to sleep. Um, and, uh, so 
yeah, you know, as soon as I could start buying music or was started having an an allowance, I was buying cassettes and then CDs. And uh, then I think it was maybe when I was 16 or maybe 15, I started buying some records. Then I got my dad's old turntable and his old records. And then I got to college and started buying more records. And uh, and now I've got uh, a little over like 4,000 records. And um, I'm, I, I buy all the time. I go out and, and dig around the Bay Area or if I'm traveling or I buy online. And I listen to records all the time. A couple in the morning before going to work, I've got to set up here at work uh i'll sometimes go through 10 records at work and then a couple more spins when i get back home so average day maybe anywhere from 8 to 16 records get played uh so it's always it's always there and when i was putting together private press um initially i was going to name it stylus uh brewing and i was really kind of I was really focused on calling it that stylus is like the needle, you know, on the, right. on the arm of the turntable. Um, but there was a wine that was called stylus. There was a brewery out of Vegas, I believe that had a Pilsner named stylus. They're no longer around, but ultimately um, when I was working with, I worked with Candace moon to kind of help push my project along and have her do all the, filing and keep everything moving and also my trademark work and she was like this is going to be difficult so my backup name was private press and um, i'm really glad that that is how it worked out that it's now called private press brewing um, private press is also a music record uh kind of nod there's these private press records which were pressed by people that either were the musicians and were able to like, you know, save up enough money to press their own records or someone pressed them for them because they believed in what they were doing. And these records could have been, there could have been 50 of them made or 500 of them made, but essentially they were sold out of like car trunks or hardware stores or at shows or just in the local, local area. And some of them, are brilliant and beautiful some of them are terrible uh they all have this like kind of feeling that like somebody was really putting it out all out there and um so those are highly highly uh uh electable and and they also just have this different zeal to them um which is kind of what i'm doing uh here yeah now i'm like privately pressing beers for a really like, you know, select membership. It's, it's at about 800 members now. Um, but there's no tap room. Um, you know, there's no, um, uh, off premise accounts. Um, everything's kind of on site only for the like six accounts that I sell beer to and 95% of it is sold to my members. So, um, it's kind of cool how that all came together without me really even realizing it initially, even when I chose private press as like my second name. 
Um, so, yeah, I think I went on a bit of a rant there, but no, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so I got a question following up that this, uh, have, have you previous to the brewery where you interested in finding private press records or has that changed since starting up private press brewing and yeah. you go after more now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely like that, like piques my interest quite a bit more. Um, and it was interesting, even when I like I had some private press records, but I didn't fully understand like the whole culture behind it. Um, and also like where they're held within like record collectors and kind of that whole world. Um, so, but then once I named my brewery that, um, I started becoming more aware of it and realizing that it did have quite a few of them. Um, and there's tons out there. Uh, but yeah, if I see like, you know, private press, like lounge jazz from, uh, I don't know, from like Kalamazoo, Michigan, I'm from like the mid seventies. I'm, I'm buying that shit, you know, like, <laughs> it's coming has, home. Has, and uh, it, digging it, into the world of private press, um, it sounds, you know, it's really interesting when you talk about it, you talk about kind of the philosophy of the artists and what they were, why they would have done the private press or, you know, what their motivation was. So now that you've dug into kind of that history a little bit, has that philosophy of the private press culture from records influenced your brewery at all? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's, being so small now, like last year I sold 72 BBLs. Um, That's amazing. When I left Jackie O's in 2019, we had done somewhere around like 13 or 13.8 in 2018. That was like the, I think the number, it might be off a little bit, but um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, now that I'm like really small and really nimble, and I've got like this kind of like captivated audience, which is my membership, which I'm pretty much exclusively making beers for them. Um, and it's not like for them necessarily. They're not like telling me what to make, but that is my audience. Um, and so I feel very fortunate that they understood the beers that I was going to make when they signed up, or at least most of them did. Some of them might have been like, well, I wanted more adjuncts or more sugar or this or that, or like uh, a, a greater value on the secondary gray market. Um, but for the most part, like, I think everybody really understands like what they're going to get. And, and that's in both just the liquid, but also like the materials that I send out that in the, in the lab results and the blend notes and like everything that brings it all together. Um, so I do feel uh, like I can just kind of make what I want. Um, so I think that that's really grabs a hold of that private press thing. It's like this, is this thing I've been doing and I'm finally getting it out there type of a feeling. And uh, so that's where things like, you know, like Munich wine or just doing a lot of like stout and barley wine blends and um and there's a number of things i've kind of stumbled upon 
or not, maybe maybe stumbled is the wrong word, but uh, working by myself in a, in a very quiet space during the pandemic is when it started. I mean, it was June of 2020 is when I sold my memberships. August is when the first beer came out. So it's been very kind of like woodshoppy, insular. And uh, from that, you're just in it. Like you're really in it. I'm not dry hopping anything. I'm not doing yeast management. I'm not trying to turn a tank. I'm just like working with liquid constantly. Yeah, that's an amazing uh, ability to be able to focus like that um, and just go from, like you're saying, you know, all the different disciplines where you have to put on your German brewer hat or your American hoppy beer hat or whatever that may be. And you try to emulate some of those ideas sometimes. And then to always be into one discipline, you know, I always think about making more beer in a way is kind of a furthering of a philosophy of that beer style, if you will, you know, like the more I pour into the idea of how to make beer in a certain way for a certain kind of beer, then you start discovering more of the mentality or the considerations around it or different aspects of the brewing process. Um, you know, when you're going, you know, when you've gone into this really focused mode, are there parts of that that have really surprised you that, um, you know, that you've allowed your brain to find within that focus and that constraints, you know, kind of like how, you know, the great serendipitous piece of you being forced to use private press as your name because of those constraints, right? I think there's always great creativity in squeezing something, you know, where you have these constraints. Yeah. So what do you, uh, what do you think you're finding as you work in that kind of focused zone of, of beer that you're discovering about your barrels or your space or, you know, what you're making in that world? So, yeah, it's, a, you know, being like, all right, it's like stouts, barley wines. That's it. That was, you know, that was very intentional um when i was kind of like restarting like my second brewing life if you will um and part of that was there was already a lot of there's already a lot of breweries here in santa cruz santa cruz is a pretty small uh city within california it's the smallest county in california um it's a lot bigger than athens ohio where i came from but it's still very small um and there's like 15 breweries here now, um, which is a lot. And there's over a thousand breweries in the state of California. So, you know, one thing that was really clear, like California might not need another IPA. California's making great lager. You know, there's always room for great beer, but it takes a lot to make great beer. A lot of people make good beer or better beer. Um, but it's the accumulation of like, you know, digging in and finding all the little things that these little tweaks that hack them incrementally so that you can track them and know if they did something good or bad. And over time and could be years or decades, they add up and then make greatness, right? There's mm -hmm. something that like sticks and like has its moment. Um, so I didn't want to just be another brewery. I didn't want to have a, I didn't want to really like take away tap room customers, shelf space, um, you know, taps, um, compete 
um, I don't want to take anything away from anybody, but I also wanted to add something to this community here or to the greater Bay, Bay Area. And, um, and part of that was also like, you know, funding a brewery um, is really difficult. Uh, it takes a lot of money. So I wanted to do something that was more nimble and small, with low overhead. And that was like, there's no brew house, there's no employees, there's no tap room. And, um, and I think I'm just going to make stouts and barley wines because that's what I love making. And everybody does that in California. Like pretty much every brewery makes a stout or barley wine. Now they might only do one or six a year. Um, and I'm going to do 12 to 15, but nobody specializes in it with the exception of course, like bottle logic or brewery or moxa or you know there's a, a, a dozens that i'm not going to name but um you know so if there's a void with within here that's what it is um so that limited everything but it also made it like well now i get to do what i really love to do right which is like can be uh can be a curse you know maybe we'll see i love what i'm doing right now and i hope i can do it for another 10, 15 years or longer. Um, but because you've limited yourself in that respect, no IPA, no lager, you know, everything's going to take six months, if not much, much longer. Um, yeah, you start like looking at, you know, well, what can I do to expand my portfolio? What can I do to um, add value? to this product, whether that's double barreling or like blending into a tank and then barreling off that tank to age, age longer, triple barreling, um, creating new sub styles, uh, new kind of brew house, like trickery, if you will, um, or just like being more transparent about the product and telling the product story, not just through like an actual written story, but like through like data or information and or tie in weird jazz fusion nods. Um, like what makes it exciting? You know, what, yeah. what moving forward, right? I mean, it, you have to stay relevant. Um, and yeah, I think, so you know, from your perspective, the most important thing is keeping yourself excited and moving forward, right? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And right now, I uh, I think I feel maybe more excited than I did when I, I started brewing in 2006 when I was 23. Uh, I think I'm 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 more amped about it than ever. That's um, amazing. Yeah, it, I I feel so so fortunate uh, to have that outlook on private press and on brewing. Um, cause, cause we know that, I mean, all of our peers, we're all a, a decade or so into this, you know, you and I, Blake and, uh, or more and burnout is real, you know, and growth and finding your, your butt in a office chair instead of in boots on a platform is a better use of your time. But what does that make you feel like? Um, yeah. and, 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 and you know, and I've been there. I say that from somebody that has obviously done that. Uh, but 
and I, and I do that now. I mean, I, I sweep the floors. I, you know, <laughs> do the quick books. I, I, you know, I unload the semis. I, I, you know, uh, yeah, all that stuff. So, um, it's kind of fun to go back to what it once was like, you know? Yeah. It feels like for a while there in the industry, we were kind of like on Vans warp tour, you know, where totally. it was like, we had the same kind of rotating cast. Uh, yep. There's a lot of like just crazy energy being poured in and everyone's feeling it on the consumer side, the producer side. Um, but, you know, it became obvious, I think, after a while, to your point of burnout, that that's not sustainable. You know, it's not sustainable as the industry is growing. We're not asking for it to stay this way. We love the growth of the industry. And I think now we're seeing what a more mature industry looks like where we've got more layers of consumers. It's not just the early adopter super enthusiasts. It's people who want to casually enjoy a great lager or a great barrel aged beer. And that's kind of cool too. Yeah. It's like local regional. I feel like a lot more. I mean, you're right. It was like the uh, festival circuit was, I mean, I'd see you, you know, one week and then, two, three weeks later, we'd bump into each other again, you know, and, 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 you know, and like that went on for years and, it, and, and, and then we'd all link up and, you know, in like, uh, Copenhagen or something, you know, and it was just like, you know, and that's where everybody was, you know, and, and, but now there's a lot less of that. I think we're all, we're all getting older too, Blake. Yeah. It's the other thing. There's right. good intentionality, I think, behind it now. Where intentionality is a great word because I've always found you to be like a very intentional person, a very intentional brewer. I remember you did a podcast, I think, with Wagner years ago, maybe eighteen or seventeen, and you were talking about your love of mole and how you were trying to like meld that into a stout and how you like went to like your favorite mole producer, you know, within the central, I don't know, Georgia area. I'm, now I'm just making sh- stuff up. You're, you're pretty a- close. We're actually working yeah. on an, the, an iteration of that beer right now. Great. But because it's, you like- it's pepper harvest yeah. right now. Great. That's amazing. You like looked at all the ingredients and really thought about how, if it was a hot side edition or a, or, you know, a bright tank edition, or like, I also remember, I think is when I was in Athens brewing with you, the, which was, I did we brew with at your place first, my place first. So it was after that. That's right. And um, you were talking about like, you were way into Al Pastor. And you're, oh, I love Mexican out. food. Yeah. <laughs> you're trying to figure out how to like meld spice and pineapple and salt, I think. You're trying to make Al Pastor beer. We did. Insane. We actually ended up doing that as a collaboration with Modern Times uh, around that time, there where you go. we yeah did like a smoked Berliner with you know to get some of that. Uh, yeah, you know, we're not putting we're not putting pig in there, so we're gonna have some smoke flavor. Yeah, huh. and the spices. It was a fun thing. Um, well, thank like, you. That's, that's intentionality, right? It's like you know, it's, but. Yeah, I learned that from watching you, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't. 
<laughs> I remember I'll talk about memories as well. Coming to you taught me a lot and it makes sense to me perfectly that you're doing what you're doing because walking through your barrel library at the time, I remember maybe it was in the car on the way there or as you're unlocking the door, you you said, this is an exploration of oxidation. And I have used that and talk talking to people I work with um, where, um, you know, we have part of our brewery that's so focused on not making oxidized beer. Like, you know, that yeah. is the, you know, Which and you get, you're very important and you get so into that that when we would put um you know barrel aged beers or whatever on our panel and people was like oh i'm getting a lot of oxidation i was like well yeah it's been in a barrel for a couple of years that's what we're doing here is trying to catch that perfect moment in a window where that oxidation has just taken off enough of the edge and manipulated these raw materials we're working with to create something that's beautiful but before it's dying and it's that's just like so anyway thank you for that lens because i don't think i would have so succinctly put it that way before talking to you about that yeah i i I, like oxidation is an an essential like ingredient for me um it's you know how i've always explained it and it took me a while to kind of get this all together but like we're taking a really intense beer styles, putting them into really intense vessels, you know, freshly emptied spirit barrels. And so there's just way too much intensity there. And in order to dull that, to, you know, to stale it down so it's palatable, that takes time, that takes micro-oxygenation, that takes maybe not purging your barrels. I flip-flop on whether I'm going to purge or not. Um, I usually always purge if I'm double barreling, but if I'm racking from primary into barrel, sometimes I don't purge at all. Um, I haven't, and and I flip-flop because I haven't found something that said like, no, you have to purge from, from my palate. But my palate looks for like oxidation you know i've got some old stuff in here that's on its third barrel third year and and at at jackie's we had stuff that was encroaching in on four almost five years and you know like i like port i like sherry what's wrong with like a little bit of that you know what's what's wrong with that like that that drier um maybe even more acid driven um you know yeah um if you will uh there's just what i'm finding is there's like so much more to be explored within beer and barrel um primarily from you know from me from the cleaner side higher abv side but without adding hardly any adjuncts or anything there's still things that we can figure out and crack the code or or like find different combinations of either base beers or yeast or barrels or you know purging or not purging there's like there's i i, I find I'm, I'm stumbling onto stuff all the time um that kind of like you know white off these little 
things and make me think, well, what if we ran with that a little bit further, you know? Um, and so I don't know. It's you fun. just mentioned a lot of different pieces there. Do you find, um, like, are you seeing more variabilities and like focus from yourself right now on process changes or raw material changes, or are they both always at the same time intertwined? I think it's more process than uh, anything. My raw materials don't change that much. Um, I've got a lot of, you know, I've got like four or five different stout recipes, and the same with barley wines and I've got four different Munich wine recipes. And I've got a Vienna wine and a quad and, um, I'm working on a, a wheat wine now and uh, maybe some braggots. But um, but at the core of every one of those uh, recipes, it's all pretty much like Simpsons and um, environment or Thomas Fawcett or Dingamans or Mutt. You know, it's like and, and maybe some raw primarily for the stouts. But everything's like European malt. It's just because it's it's the best and uh and so my ingredients don't change too much it's the process not even so much on the hot side there's a couple hot side things that i've been playing around with but primarily for me it's like abandoning the whole idea that it's like we brew this beer we age it in these barrels for this amount of time and that's this year's vintage for me it's all about like this blended expression, right? And and to me, that freedom, like even if it's a beer that I make every year, it's going to be different every year because all I'm look, working with is like a loose construct. Like this is barrel-aged stout. So the majority of that blend is going to be single-barrel stouts. And there might be some double-barrel in there and maybe like maybe a porter, which I would call a stout, but, um, same, same, same thing. Exactly. It just, for me, it just doesn't have roasted barley, which is like yeah. half the stout recipes. Yeah. All <laughs> um, and, People put roasted uh, barley in stout still. I, I do for a few just to create variability, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah and so but like i'm not aiming for an abv uh if it comes to barley wine i'm not aiming for a color you know i know it's gonna smell like a stout it's gonna look like a stout or barley wine or vice versa because that's what's going into it but what makes the best beer at that moment in time and me doing my due diligence and blending and knowing my barrel stock and just trying to like you know focus in or like triangulate into like that zone and then be like, all right, this is the best I can do right now. You know, uh, that do you, have you thought about, sorry to cut you off. Have, I mean, it just seemed to me when I, you know, hearing you talk, there is such an analogous representation of what you're doing and the way you talk about it with beer as to, when you go to a jazz night and people are like, Hey, do you know the standard? And then, yeah. And really what that means is here's the framework. Yep. And then we're going to go riff on that. 
and they get into it. And then by virtue of who is there and the environment they're in that night and what's happening, it's all going to give you a different version of that jazz standard. But at the end of the day, you will recognize it. Musicians recognize it. Have you like, is that intentional? Do you have you have you made that parallel in your brain with what you're doing, or is that yeah, just yeah? So, you know, um, I name all my recipes after jazz musicians. So there's drummers, vibraphones, sax, bass, guitar, um, keys, whatever. Um, so my focus here is on the ensemble. That's what it's all about. So the names of the beers, I want it, it's going to have a tie to the actual beer or the story of the beer, but it, it's got to sound like a song title or an album title. And then as I list on my, you know, cards that I send with every quarterly um, order, um, it says personnel, not recipe. And personnel reflects the recipe that's playing on. And some of them are like, it's just like two drummers, but there's some riffing, you know, Max Roach and Buddy Guy albums out there. And it's just been like banging on skins and it's outrageous. Um, or, or some just by virtue of like what beer got in there. It's like, oh, this is actually like a quartet. It's got drums and bass and keys and like a woodwind or whatever. Um, but that's kind of all happenstance. But ultimately, it comes down to down to the liquid. And it is like, it's about the ensemble. You know, what's going to sound best? What does this want to sound like? And that's what I'm doing when I go out there and start pulling nails and start doing bench top blending. And, you know, for me, I'm not thinking about it as like all right well i gotta have the saxophone beer and the drum beer <laughs> um it's it, it's all completely palette driven you know i just gotta find you know i know what i want and then i blend towards it and if there's a beer that goes into it that's like four months old that's like you know it's been in a barrel for four months but it's taste composed and if that makes the better beer what's well, it's going in you know, I pump kegs into tanks to make a better beer. You know, I don't need draft accounts. Let's 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 make this hit exactly like I want it to. So um that's how I look at it. It's there's loose constructs and there is intention and in something that I want, but the, the path to get there um sometimes is sometimes is really challenging other times it just kind of comes together really quickly just because i know what my stock tastes like or whatever and you know but it's just like being in the moment being in the pocket if you will and oh i will yeah just there you go <laughs> yeah i love uh i love that you know that I, th I actually and i say this with all sincerity i think it takes that decade of experience to have the humility that you don't have it all figured out or whatever to say that this four month beer can go in there because i think when you get started off you know it's like oh we age our barrels for a minimum of a year i want to be able to tell people and put on the label that there's 12 months or 18 months or whatever 
instead of just backing up and saying, what's going to make this best. So that's pretty awesome that you're also, you know, to tie it back to what we're talking about at the beginning, that you have that focus that you're saying, you know, what's going to make it just right. That's, that's incredible. It, it, like for me at the end of the day, if you tried to make the best that you could at that moment in time, and you, and you really tried, um, then like you should be able to put that out and whether people like it or not, um, or if you look at untapped, um, which I do, um, uh, it's okay because you, you tried, like you couldn't, you literally could not have made that beer any better at that moment in time. Now, maybe you could have like pushed it back another three months and revisited it, but there's a point in any business owner's timeline where the bank account's getting really low. And you got to order labels, which don't come as fast as they used to. And you've got to, you know, you, you've got to bring in money. Um, but as time goes on here at Private Press, I tr always try to brew more and more and more, get more barrels filled so that my libraries or my, or my threads or whatnot, um, or my, you know, cues are all more diversified you know, young, old, different barrels, different recipes. And so I've got this huge palette of color, you know, and doesn't mean I need to use all of it, but hopefully there's something in there that makes it pretty much what I want. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about more of your personnel in just a second. Uh, we're going to take a short break for this message and then come right back for more personnel talks with Brad Clark of Private Press. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Welcome back. I'm here with Brad Clark. Uh, Brad, you talked about your threads for a second there and how they're all named after musicians. Um, we've talked about music a little bit, and jazz is certainly something that you keep coming back to. I know I've talked to you about music, and I know jazz is something you're passionate about. Um Talk to me just a little bit about your journey in that, you know, growing up, it didn't sound like there was a, a continual major influence that pushed you in a certain genre direction. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but tell me about, you know, what pulled you into the world you listened to and how you got there and how you discovered these people. Yeah. Um, so 
let's see here, like growing up, um, I'd say like, you know, like high school years, you know, late middle school, high school, uh, I started playing bass, but I played bass in like a, like a rap metal band. Um, and we had like a turntablist and, uh, um, so, uh, this is, you know, late nineties. So I'm all about, you know, rage against the machine and corn and limp biscuit and, uh, you know, suicidal tendencies and system of a down and a bunch of this stuff. Um, and also like hip hop as well. And, uh, you know, black sheep and, uh, extra prolific and hieroglyphics and a bunch of stuff. But jazz had not really entered the canon at all. Um, and uh, I got into this band called Candiria, uh, which is a New York hardcore band. Um, but they had elements of, they had like horns and they had ambient stuff and they had um, kind of hip hop elements in there periodically, but um, really weird time time signatures. And through really getting into them and then reading the liner notes within the CDs, they would like touch on uh, like a guitarist named John, uh, John Abercrombie, um, John McLaughlin, another guitarist. And so then I started looking into those. And, um, and so like, if you start with John McLaughlin, which I named one of my barley wines after uh, the Mahavishnu recipe, um, he's in the Mahavishnu Orchestra, which which has like these like amazing albums with Billy Cobham on drums, um, and John Lupani and Jerry Goodman on violin and Jan Hammer on keys and uh it just goes on and on. Um Do you remember but, us talking about Mahavishnu back in the day? I do. I do. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. It's like they they just burn you know it's just scorched earth <laughs> um yeah I, it, it's it, it's incredible it's one of the few so there's like Mahavishnu orchestra weather report and return to forever and weather report and return to forever have great albums um especially the earlier stuff but they got more electronic and a little bit more commercial that's when jazz was selling a ton which was in like the mid early to mid 70s mm-hmm. but i can still go back to all the Mahavishnu albums and they still they they still rip they still hold my attention. Whereas some of the other ones, I'm like, oh, this is like memory lane a little bit, and I enjoy it. But um, I'm looking for something different now. Um, but uh, and you know, and John McLaughlin played with Miles Davis on in a silent way and Bitches Brew, and there's this great story about Herbie Hancock and John McLaughlin talking to each other before the. Uh, before one of the in, in in a silent way sessions, and it was his first time playing. And Miles told him told John McLaughlin to play like he doesn't know how to play guitar. And then so that's what he tried to do because it's Miles Davis. And they left, and he asked Herbie Hancock like, "Was that good?" And, he's, and Herbie Hancock said, "I don't know, but when the record comes out, it always sounds great." So, you know, that's like direction, but 
uh, anyways, Candiria got me onto jazz and then I started listening to jazz and then I started like hearing all these, you know, sampled drum beats or horn things or loops or keyboard parts from hip hop songs that I knew. And then it just started spiraling. And uh, so primarily I'd buy like 1968 to 1974, which is really known as like jazz fusion, but it's got electric guitar, electric bass, electric keys, the electric roads, uh, which I named the beer after. And uh, um, now I'm like so deep into that stuff. Um, I'm Yeah, I'm buying Am weird I stuff from like all over the world. Oh, you have to be if you're starting at Mahavishnu because that's not necessarily mainstream to begin with. <laughs> um, I've I got uh, ended up uh, coming across Birds of Fire. Is that the yep. name of the record? I got that yeah. on vinyl. Um, my it's so funny. I got pulled in similarly where I was a big Three Eleven fan in yep, high school, being being a drummer, and the drummer for them, Chad Sexton, dramatic uh, genius. Yes, thank you. He talks about his love for uh, what was his name, Michael Narada Williams, okay, who is the guy who played on Visions of the Emerald Beyond. Yep, it was the one like non-Cobham record that they did. Yep, um, and uh, that's what got me on that path as well. So, got a question related to that. When you name uh, one of your recipes Mahavishnu, what comes first, the name? or the recipe um that one was a little bit more thoughtful or intentional if we will um it's it's like my most like traditional english barley wine and john mclaughlin is from england and uh so that's kind of the tie there um but yeah i just yeah yeah it's all s so 4 from south Vale. And predominantly uh, Maris Otter, but, you know, a touch of oats and a little special bee, you know, maybe some aromatic or something like that. So do you find that, like, don't you have like a Dejanet? Uh, yeah. yeah, that's another barley wine. Yeah. So um, like Jack Dejanet, I had a sticks growing up. If you've got. The guy like, the guy's out of control. He's right. I mean, so how often are you trying to match a personality of a major jazz musician to the beer? And in what ways do you go through that process of thinking about how those align up? Um, I mean, Dejanet just plays on like so many albums that I think are just outstanding. And a lot of that has to do with just his like awareness and his ability to not play over top of people but like you know really come out swinging when he needs to and he's also like a really great um keyboard player as well one of my favorite albums that he plays on is an album by a group called compost and it's a self-titled album compost it has like a ink and temple on it and uh he doesn't play drums on that album uh bob moses plays drums on that album that album is like one of my favorite albums. Uh, I should also, uh, I, I have Billy Cobham tattooed on my back um, and George Duke, um, which is a keyboard player. Um, I do have a beer called Duke. I do not have a beer called Cobham yet, but 
I did show Billy Cobham my tattoo. And uh, at 80 years old, he said, now, I, now I've seen it all. Um, <laughs> That's the best. Yeah, it was, it was, it was something. Um, but uh, yeah, so like Dejanet's my favorite recipe out of all of Stouts, barley wines, munich wines, whatever. Dejanet, I love, I love that recipe. It's, it's, you know, it's loosely a riff on Brick Kiln, which is the barley wine that I worked on for years and years before finally felt comfortable with it at Jackie O's. Um, it's got a touch of chocolate malt in it. Um, and that is my workhorse. Um, I love making barley wine. And Dejanet is always like the, the real base for most of the barley wine, uh, barley wines that come out of here, barley wine blends, I should say. So he's kind of like my band leader um, in some respects. I would say, Brad, you are on the Mount Rushmore of barley wine makers in America. Um I would say your adaptation of the English style into barrels has inspired a lot of people, including myself on the way to approach making that beer. Um, so yeah. want to just give you that uh, you deserve it. And then related, um, you know, I've heard wheat wine before you, uh, but Munich wine. Yep. I, I feel like that is squarely in the Brad Clark camp of originals. Um, what At what point are you saying that this is not a barley wine and I want to go on a new journey? Like, tell me how you got to Munich wine. Yeah, so um, I've always loved Munich malt. Um, I used it a lot in, all, in most of my big beers and even like uh, – smaller beers at Jackio's, uh, primarily the uh, brown ale that we made there had like a lot of Munich malt in it. And most of the stouts and, and most of the barley wines did too. Um, so Munich malts, like my favorite, that's like my favorite malt. Um, and, uh, and then like hearing stories, there was a brewery out of Pennsylvania that I think only operated for a few years. And I think they closed in 2005 or six, they were called heavyweight. Um, I heard a story about that they had a porter that was uh, like 100%, you know, well, like the base malt was all Munich malt. And that just like blew my mind, my early brewer, brewer mind, you know? And, uh, um, and so I never like went full in on that, but it was always just there. And so here in Santa Cruz um, over the past four years, I've taken up running and um i'd go in fits and spurts right now I'm, I'm not running that much but uh there's a bunch of single track like mountain biking trails right outside of our house and so i'll go run in the woods by myself without headphones and uh in that way sometimes it's like therapeutic or i just work through work stuff or maybe i'm just just not there anymore i'm just looking for rocks and and, and bunnies um but uh, one time I was like really trying to figure out like, okay, I got all these stouts and all these barley ones. What else can I make? How can I like kind of stretch this out a little bit? Because I'm already feeling a little constrained, you know, and I'm trying to make a dozen plus beers a year. And there's got to be some variability across the board. 
And I was like, well, I could do wheat wine. And I've done that for a long time, but it just didn't seem exciting to me. And then like my, you know, my mind was like, well, you love Munich malt, Brad. (laughs) Why not make (laughs) Munich wine? And it's like, you know, there's wheat wine, rye wine, oat wine, you know, somebody's probably made rice wine. Somebody probably made Munich wine before I did. They just didn't call it Munich wine. They called it barley wine. You know, this is my barley wine with Munich malt as a base, which is like totally possible. I, you know, everything's been done already. We're just reinterpreting it and making it relevant in today's world. That's, that's that. Um, so then I started brewing them and, you know, then I started tasting them at like three months and then some other people started brewing them just because I think I'd, I posted about brewing it and, and then I got nervous uh, that somebody was going to put out a Munich wine before I did. And then I put out the first batch of Silent Pursuit, which is a nod to this Munich wine kind of pursuit that I did by myself during the pandemic, during the lockdown kind of stages. Um, and so that was just kind of me here in my space, like making Munich wine at the next door brewery, uh, Santa Cruz Mountain Brewing, and uh, or as I called it, the Munich Wine Research Center, um, <laughs> which is a Frank Zappa nod um, to Muffin Man. Uh, but anyways, uh, and then it, 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 it tasted really good and it tasted really composed um, early on. So I put out this blend of like two different Munich wine recipes. One was like nine months and one was like seven months. And then since then, I've woven it into stouts and barley wine. And it's like become like a essential ingredient in a lot of my blends. And so if I'm doing like a, my like life is round. Um, actually, that's the name of the compost album. Life is round. Um, going back to Dejanet. Um, when I do life is round, which is totally named after the Dejanet album, um, like it will always have twenty uh, percent of that will always be Munich wine now because it works so good. And when I do Silent Pursuit, twenty percent of that's going to be barley wine. And there's like this balancing act, right? And it, it brings a different, it brings a nutty note. It brings a different fruit note. I find it's more dark cherry than it is like raisin, um, brighter stone fruit than you'd find in some other kind of barley wine, especially more like oxidative barley wine. Um, and so, yeah, I just like, like I said, it's like loose constructs. Like, What's your oldest Munich wine you've got in stock right now? Um, I've got two double barrel ones right now that are, I don't know, they're maybe close to two years. I don't know. I'd have to look. I don't. Is it developing differently than you expected? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely like softening and um, becoming a little fuller bodied um, and higher in like higher alcohol. So that fuller body sometimes quickly like dissipates and, you know, leaves your tongue pretty dry. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm just monitoring it right now. I think I'm going to do a double barrel version of silent pursuit um, soon. Uh, 
and I've got two barrels that will be the anchor for that. And I just need to find one more. Or also what I've been doing is, you know, if I need three barrels for like to, to fill the club, you know, like what they may buy. Um, but if I can't get the complexity I want, I'll bring in a fourth barrel or maybe even a fifth. Then blend all those together and then get new barrels and then rack out a hundred gallons and then mm -hmm. age that. So I've got, I've got blends aging, you know, now as well that I can use as, you know, what I start my blend with or what really takes a blend to the next level, or maybe it's a single barrel release, but it's kind right. of free. Yeah. Put it on a journey and see what happens to it. Yeah. Why not? Right. Yeah, that's what we're absolutely. here to do. Figure, figure shit out, right? Make yeah. Related to that, like, what is uh, like, what is your frontier right now that you're thinking about? Like, where, you know, as we talked about, you're discovering new things, new pieces of that. Where um, are you finding a source of creativity, curiosity? Like, what's your current passion? Um, or thought, see, I should say. Yeah, a couple of things I got going on. Um, I've got some like, you know, new, um, oak barrels, heavy toast coming. Um, mm. so I've never played with that. Always wanted to, um, kind of going back to the Odell woodcut series, um, mm. an old, an old sleeper, um, back in the day. But I remember visiting Odell after JBF one year and, uh, Joe, I can't remember his last name. He left and started a brewery in Austin at some point, but uh, he gave us an incredible tour and we tasted all these virgin oak barrels and they were really dynamic. And now with this process that I have here, um, I think some having some virgin oak in here that I can, you know, blend into something could be really dynamic. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, I've been doing a, uh, mash capping with different things um so kind of like taking a nod from our old like black ipa techniques where we would mm. you know cap the mash with black malt and then sparge yep. so i'm doing that with like cacao nibs and toasted coconut um, different things just to see if like what you can if you can build like a, a more composed chocolate character by you know, adding nibs in the mash, but then you boil it for a while and then age it for a year. And it's arguable, but it's something different and it's fun. So I'm doing it. Um, what else? I want to do more triple barreling. <laughs> I've been getting a lot of barrels that have head bones. And, oh, yeah. And uh, how do you like that? I've always um, hated it uh it's difficult to work with um especially some of the ones i've been getting have like bigger bung holes so it took oh, yeah. me a while to find like a bung that would fit that and now i'm really concerned that when i want to get it out my racketeer won't fill that space it won't be able to push it through so i think i should get a flex impeller pump to uh just move it out which which is fine i i used to do that um but they're difficult to work with. But I was talking to Tim, the um, head brewer 
or you know owner of seller maker co-owner of seller maker and he made a great point um that like you're getting a you might be getting a lot more oak from the vertical barrel because when they're on their side you're missing these staves as they evaporate you're missing all the stave but if they're vertical you're getting a lot more stave which has the majority of the char but as i'm talking about this right now with you blake i'm realizing you might also be missing the head of the barrel if it's vertical yeah imagine there's might... a there's a shift right where you as it starts evaporating from the top you your drop off of oak content is much quicker and you're probably going to have oxidation faster right because there's more yeah, area up there I do try to top those off frequently and oh. before I before I move them I put wet, wet rags on top of them overnight and that swells that swells the head um but yeah um but I'm playing around with those there's this like a uh, smaller bourbon producer um kind of based out of San Francisco called Subtle Spirits mm -hmm. and uh he's not producing bourbon but he's purchasing barrels or doing barrel selections from MGP and putting out some like really dynamic blends and some great single barrels. And I've been getting all of his barrels for the past six or eight months. And a lot of those are the vertical ones, but um, Joshua Tynes is uh, at subtle spirits is uh, putting out some cool stuff and it's kind of regional. So the fact that I've been able to grab a lot of those barrels is really kind of like, we'll see where that takes private press next year or even within this year but um uh so that's been another thing i guess that's yeah <laughs> no that's pretty cool you know i think that's something that i've always i think learned a lot by talking to yourself or other folks is that you know at creature comforts one thing I do like about our approach to beers, we make a lot of different kinds of beer. We try to execute on everything from barrel age to, you know, approachable lagers, things like that. And it's, it's fun to be able to try all that, but it's also, there's that element of, you know, Jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing, where I recognize there's a trade off of talking to other folks who have like a supremely focused discipline on what they're looking at. And it's always interesting to, you know, see how those parallel out and to talk to someone about the things they are uncovering within that, that focus. Yeah, definitely, definitely like deep diving and it's just, yeah, there's, I'm very like, there's not many distractions anymore. And like my life for the most part is I come to work for a little bit. I do what I need to do. And then um, I go home and I hang out with my dog and the dare comes home after work and we make dinner and watch TV and then, you know, and then I go back to work the next day for like, sometimes it's three hours, sometimes it's eight, rarely more than eight. So there's a really different focus, a different appreciation. You know, one of the things that I'm, my main goal is to sustain the quality of life that I have right now. 
And so if I look at that from private press, it's about keeping the quality of the product really high, staying mm -hmm. relevant, you know, keeping people purchasing and wanting to be a part of the private press, you know, experience. And, um, and then hopefully that allows me to spend more time at home. You know, I love working, but the success of this business is based upon the amount of time I spend outside of it, not the bank account. It's a great way to look at it. Um, it's, it's, I think it's been, it's been life changing. I mean, big time. Yeah. I've there's a lot of people who need it. to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> that's why it's a, that's why I like to talk about it because it's really important. Um, and, uh, but it's, it takes a while to find it, you know? And so and, and um, it takes a lot of restraint to not screw it up. <laughs> to have, um, to have some balance here. What are some things that you do miss about maybe, you know, working with other people or being in a yeah. different brewery environment? Yeah, team. I miss I miss a team. Like it was awesome. Yeah. Having like having a bunch of people that really cared about uh what they're doing and um like this um central driving force um that isn't just you and it was you know and you could like you know you could pass the ball off take a break and know that it was still moving forward with, you know, just as much vigor. Um, so I do really miss brewing with people, which is why not having a brew house uh, really helps me because whenever I go to faction or Santa Cruz mountain to a uh, brew, um, I get to work with their staff. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm on the brew deck and running most, most of the brew every single time. Uh, but I don't, I do it so periodically. Like I, I haven't brewed in almost four months um, that I forget how to do it. Or like, you know, I'm like, well, where does this valve need to be during, you know, oral off so that I don't, you know, like stick it. Um, yeah. And like all these things. And they're always there to help. And then, you know, I, we have beers and, you know, hang out and share stuff and talk and, catch up and uh yeah that's what i miss the most i mean sometimes this gets kind of lonely um this, you know i've got, I've got 6500 square feet and i make 72 bbls and uh and nobody's come in here today i thought a delivery driver was going to deliver some barrels but i don't think he's coming um <laughs> so literally nobody's checking in on <laughs> and yeah. uh so, you know, yeah, I definitely miss that, like, team component. Um, yeah. Or, or it, I also miss, like, a tap room. I miss, like, this space that says, like, this is what you do. Or, like, people walk in, they're like, oh, you know, like, let's see what they're all about. And, like, being able to interact with customers. And so I get to do that during, like, pickups, which mm -hmm. is quarterly here um but and and i see a lot of my members out and about in santa cruz or like if i go up to san francisco or oakland or whatnot i bump into my members 
all all the time. Um, but I uh, I miss being able to just walk through a door and to be able to interact with people. Absolutely. Um, so I don't want to end on a downer. So I'm going to one last question for you. What does bring you the most joy now? Uh, leaving work and going home and drinking a Pilsner with my dog outside. Hands down. It's the best. What's your dog's name? Sitting outside in Santa Cruz with like Asante Darius, West Coast or Lager. It's, it doesn't have to, you know, it could be, could be not that great of a ball day or not that great of a beer, but it's the best. Yeah. It's the best. Good living in Santa Cruz. Right. I love that. Well, um, man, thanks for, thanks for chatting with me. Um, thank you so much, Blake. This has been great. I wish I could ask you, I wish I could like flip it around and then do the same thing to you, but I'm not prepared to do that. I had the same feeling and, when and, um, and Avery already did that. Yeah, when she <laughs> interviewed me, I was the same way. I was like, "Well, I want to interview you now," but uh, it didn't work. You know, here we yeah. go. You get to pass the baton. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Hopefully, I get to see you soon. Um, yeah, I hope so too. Um, I don't do a lot of festivals anymore, so I like drinking I, beer in my backyard with my dog. <laughs> did sign me up. I need to come visit. That'd be great. Yeah, you should. You should. Yeah. All right, I'll come Same out there. Like, yeah, and. Yeah. Um, I think I should be maybe interviewing Corey King if you would respond to his emails. <laughs> well, now it's out there in the ether. It's got to happen. Uh, so Brad will be back on the next episode of this show as the host having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing. Maybe Corey, maybe not. That will be on air in two weeks. So make sure you tune in for that. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I'm Blake Tires of Creature Comforts Brewing. Thank you for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog.